This morning, I want to I want to deliver a message that seems to have a very strange title. Will you smell like smoke? You know, when we claim to be something, people have the right to expect something. Unfortunately, I'm concerned that they don't always get what we say we are and what they expect. I uh, heard the story years ago of a of a man who drove a truck for a living, and that can become kind of a boring, monotonous job. And so. What he had developed doing is over the years, it was cruel, but when he would see a hitchhiker, before he got to him, he'd kind of swerve his old truck over onto the shoulder and make that hitchhiker think that he was going to hit him. Well, you can just imagine the hitchhiker would jump into the ditch thinking, good grief, the guy's going to get me. And of course, right before he got there, he'd pull the truck back up onto the road and he'd look in his rearview mirror and just laugh (laughs) as he saw this this poor person climbing up out of the ditch and realizing, I mean, I'm still here. Well, one day he was driving along and he saw this hitchhiker and he thought, you know, I've given these guys so much trouble over the years. I think I'll just pick one of them up. So he pulls over. He stops the guy. The door opens up on this tractor truck rig and up climbs this guy and begins to just jabber on and on. It turns out that he's a preacher. This truck driver thought, oh, for Pete's sake, out of all the people I could pick up, it's a preacher. What in the world? So I'm going to have to really be on my best behavior. I've got to clean up my language and all this kind of stuff, you know, because this preacher expects something, you know. So they're driving along, and they're talking, talking, talking. And finally, he just kind of forgets that it's a preacher in the truck, you know, and he, and he notices this hitchhiker up the road. And so just kind of involuntarily... He swerves the truck. It just kind of became habit. And he swerves the truck over, and the preacher kind of looks at him. And then the truck driver thinks, oh, my gosh, what am I doing? I mean, this guy's a preacher. I can't. So he jerks the truck back up onto the road, and all of a sudden he hears a boom. And he looked, and he said, did I hit him, preacher? He said, no, you missed him, but I got him with the door. And, and that, that is not exactly what you would expect out of a, pre- out of a preacher. <laughs> unfortunately sometimes we do not live up to expectations right i mean if we claim to be a believer there's certain things that god expects and there's certain things that people ought to be able to expect now it boils down ultimately to to this message today and i must tell you this message is kind of sobering as i think all ought to be But it's sobering to me. I will tell you, first of all, this message is incredibly sobering to me. Because I realize that one of these days, I'm going to stand before the Lord and give an account of myself. Now, I'll get into it in the message, but the Bible teaches that there are two judgments. Now, there are many judgments. For instance, our sins were judged on Christ on the cross, and if we embrace him as Lord and Savior, then our judgment is in him, and we bypass the great white throne judgment. But the two primary judgments that we think of are the last day, you know. The Bible says there are two judgments. One of them is the judgment of believers. You say, well, what do you mean believers being judged? Well, believers are not judged as to whether or not they're going to heaven. They're judged as to what they've done with their salvation once they became a believer. Then there is, and that that one's called in the Greek language, the, the Bema seat. We know it as the judgment seat of Christ. Then there's a second judgment that the Bible calls the great white throne judgment. Now, that's the judgment of all who have not embraced Christ as Savior. And they will hear the words, depart from me, I never knew you. And the Bible says, ultimately, they will find themselves in eternity in a place that the Bible calls the lake of fire. It's It's a terrible, terrible prospect for eternity for anyone without Christ. So those those are the two judgments. 
Now, when I think of the fact that I, as a believer, am still going to have to appear at the judgment seat of Christ to give an account of my life, i got to tell you, it sobers me. And in just a moment, the will you smell like smoke will make sense to you as we dig into the message. Now, this is a kind of lengthy passage, but I really think we have to read the whole thing to get the context. Here, Paul is going to be talking about this judgment of Christians what we call the judgment seat of Christ, or the Greek language calls the bema seat. Now listen, listen to what he says. Paul says, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. So Paul is referring to these Christians at Corinth, and he said, we've worked among you, and it's like we're building a spiritual building there at Corinth. He goes on to say, according to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation... And another builds on it. So he's saying, look, I I planted the church there. I led many of you to a faith in Christ. But, you know, others are going to come along and help you and disciple you. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. Then he identifies what the it is that we build on. Verse 11. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So Paul now identifies the only foundation For saving faith. If you hope to bypass the judgment of the wicked and show up at the judgment of believers, you have to have the right foundation. And that foundation is Jesus. There is no other foundation. Not church membership, not baptism, not church attendance, not good intentions, not prayer, not Bible memorization. I mean, all those things are great, but they're not the foundation. And they're like shifting sand and they will give way eternally. So then Jesus, I mean, and then Paul goes on to say in verse 12, Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, we'd call them jewels, wood, hay, straw, notice the shift. Gold, silver, jewels, wood, hay, straw. Well, there's a big difference in those two building materials. He said, um, each, work, each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it. The day he's talking about there is this judgment of believers. Because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Now you're probably starting to get the idea of smelling like smoke. Notice all of the people here, even if they don't have anything to show for their Christianity, are still on the foundation of Christ, so they're saved, but many of them have nothing to show for it. So then the question comes, if I had to stand at this judgment today, what would I have to show for the salvation that God has given me by His grace? Because I have come to know Christ, I'm born again, I know Jesus... But how have I been building on that foundation since I was an eight-year-old boy? Called to preach at 10, preached my first sermon at 16. Well, so how have I been building on it? I could do all that stuff and still be building with the wrong materials. So that's the real question. Now, there's a, there's a story out of the Old Testament that I think is a perfect example. Some of you may remember my having preached on this uh, topic years and years ago when I, I was still at Trinity And I came over here to preach because General Boykin was here and then he was going over to preach at my church, so we swapped pulpits. And I I used this passage. I'm not going to elaborate totally on it, but I want to read about 
in the days of Solomon, you remember he's the king of Israel, he's the son of David, wisest man who ever lived, but there was a period in his life where he went after sensual things. What would satisfy him, him in a human fleshly sense? And he found out nothing. And that's why he writes Ecclesiastes and he just says everything is vanity. There's nothing out there that will ultimately satisfy. Okay, so now take that under consideration. As 1 Kings 10 tells us that during his reign when he was right with God, God blessed Israel so much so that they became incredibly wealthy. And in the 10th chapter of 1 Kings, you have all this list, kind of an inventory of some of the wealth of Israel. And in particular, this is not all of it, obviously, but in verse 17, it talks about something kind of unique. It says, and he made 300 shields of beaten gold. Now imagine that, a warrior shield made out of solid gold. Three pounds of gold went to one shield. Now gold prices fluctuate. It'd be a little higher than this now, but... Somewhere $100,000 plus would be the value of one of these shields. So pretty pricey. He built 300 of them. And the king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. Now we're going to see in a moment what they did with these shields. These shields were not for warfare. You wouldn't take golden shields out on the battlefield. Number one, gold is kind of a soft metal. Wouldn't work real well as a shield. These were ornaments. What they would do is the guard, which would be kind of like the honor guard of the king, a little bit like the uh, uh, secret service for the president, they would line the walkway from the palace to the temple. And when Solomon would go to the temple, they would all be holding one of these golden shields and it would make this golden walkway And if it was a sunny day, can you imagine the reflection of the sun off of those golden shields? It would kind of create this golden aura, almost like an archway, and the king would walk through that to go to the temple. Pretty amazing stuff, right? So here's these these shields, and they're ornamental, and they were kept just for that purpose. All right, now, a shift occurs, and by the time we get to 1 Kings chapter 14, Solomon has passed from the scene, and one of his sons named Rehoboam is now the king. But he's very different from Solomon. He's a very wicked man. So it says, and Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah. Verse 22, and Judah did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they provoked him to jealousy with their sins, which they had committed above all that their fathers had done. Now, there's a lot more in 1 Kings 14 about just how wicked Rehoboam was. But just suffice it to say that Scripture says he topped every wicked person that had preceded him. Well, that's, 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 that's a pretty big reputation, except in the wrong direction. So, I mean, he's a really wicked guy. All right, now, as God had warned the Israelites, if you turn your back on me, then I will remove my protecting hand and my hand of blessing and... Foreign armies will invade you. Well, that's exactly what happens. So, in chapter 14, verses 25 through 26, it came to pass in the fifth year of King Rehoboam that Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. And he took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He even took away all, and notice it says, and took away all the shields of gold which Solomon had made. So I often say that Shishak came down to Israel, gathered up all the treasure and took back to his shack. So that's what happens here. He rips them off. He takes everything. Well, this is discipline of God on 
the Israelites for turning their backs on God. God said, I'll remove my hand of blessing and I will remove my hand of protection. Now, we're not Israel, but kind of picture America here. You see a connection? Yeah, exactly. You see the same thing happening. Now, we're not Israel, but at the same time, we are a people that claimed early on that we were a nation under God, a a nation founded on Judeo-Christian principle, and now we're at least half of us, maybe not half of us here, but half of the country is the exact opposite of that. And the other half is about half-hearted, which makes for a really bad situation in America. But this is what is going on. Okay, now, you would think that King Rehoboam, king of Israel, he knows of God, would realize this is God's judgment. And you would think that he would fall on his knees, fall on his face and say, God, man, I have sinned. Forgive me. I repent. Please help us. But notice what he does. Verse 27 and 28. And King Rehoboam made in their stead. He's talking about those gold shields, brazen shields. We'd call it brass. Brass. And committed them to the hands of the chief of the guard, which kept the door of the king's house. And it was so when the king went into the house of the Lord that the guard bore them and brought them back into the guard chamber. So there's kind of an explanation of what they did with these, these ornamental shields. And it showed the glory of Israel is what the whole idea is. Now, instead of repenting, what does he do? Well, the gold's gone. So he can't use gold. Everything's devalued. So what does he use? Brass. Now, brass is only worth a fraction, a very small fraction of what gold is worth. In fact, brass is so almost worthless that we've used to use it for years for plumbing. I mean, it's just, it's just not very valuable. But here's the interesting property of brass. If you keep it polished at a distance, it looks like gold. But you have to keep it polished. You can't let it tarnish. And that takes a lot of work. So what Rehoboam does is he creates this great facade, this great pretense. He doesn't want the people to realize just how spiritually bankrupt and now, accordingly, how economically bankrupt they are. So he recreates these shields out of brass and if they were highly polished at a distance would still look like the old original golden shields that have been taken by Shishak back to Hishak. Okay, so, so the, it's, it's all a facade. It's, it's fakery. But if people aren't the wiser, they won't know the difference. Now, I suggest to you that that may be some kind of connection to what I'm talking about today on the judgment seat of Christ. When I was a kid, uh, I, I've been a musician uh, all my life. I grew up in a, in a musical family. And the first instrument that I learned to play was the drums. Now, a lot of musicians don't think drums are an instrument, and they don't think drummers are musicians. But anyway, I, I learned how to play the drums. And one of the critical items in the toolbox of a drummer, besides drumsticks and a set of drums, is a can of Brasso. Have any of you ever used Brasso, right? Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, what do you do with that Brasso? Well, a drummer has cymbals. Symbols are made out of brass. And if you're a drummer, you don't want your cymbals to be all tarnished and dull. If you live in an area of high humidity, they'll just tarnish on their own. If people grab them with their hands, the body moisture and oils will create tarnished finger and thumb prints on them. So I was always polishing the cymbals 
Because I wanted my drums when I played somewhere to really sparkle, really shine. And you know, as a drummer, when you hit those cymbals, they'll kind of tip up. And if there's any lighting at all, wow, I mean, that's just really dazzling. And so you work on those cymbals and you rub and you rub. It's kind of like, you know, uh, brasso on, brasso off, you know, that kind of a deal. And you, and you, you, you clean these cymbals. Now, I would submit to you that that's probably the way a lot of churches in America look to the Lord. Brass. They're not gold, but they work so hard at making it look good, it looks like gold at a distance. But it's not. It's only worth a fraction. But you see, the facade can be promoted if the people aren't allowed to get close enough to really check it out. And I think that's one of the reasons why the megachurch movement have been so popular in America. Because we Americans almost value symbolism over substance anymore. So we're more than willing to go to an arena-style church and be entertained and be told tickly little things to our ears that we want to hear. And we walk out feeling better about ourselves, even though we haven't made a bit of difference in in, change in us. So we're no different. But see, we want that. We would prefer that. And we work really hard at it. And it's almost like I can see spiritually churches constantly brasso on, brasso off. Let's make this thing look like gold. But then you can translate this to the individual. What about me? What about you? As a believer, do we have gold in our lives, the real stuff? Or even as true believers, is there more brass than gold? And so we're busy trying to look right, even though we know we aren't. I mean, I I know how it works. You fight all week long like wild animals, and then Sunday morning, shut up and get in this car. We're going to church, and we're going to act like Christians. And all of a sudden, everybody starts acting right, right? Husband and wives come to church, arm in arm, hand in hand, just as soon as church is over. Sometimes in the parking lot, it's like they're having a gunfight. They're beside the other sides of the car, Boom! And they're like that. And then the other one raises a boom like that. I mean, you can see it going on. Right? I mean, come on. Let's admit it. But we want to look good. We want to act like everything's okay. So during an invitation, well, we're not going to budge. Because if we do, everybody else is going to know something's up. And we don't want anybody to know that something's up. And one of the things that is hurting the American church, and I would even argue this church is we don't seem to be very open and moldable and pliable to just sometimes come and pray. You say, well, Dan, there's nothing any more special about this spot than me praying at home or at work or outside. Well, to a degree, that's correct. I I, I would agree with you. This is no special deal. Except that when we gather together as the body of Christ, there's just something kind of special that happens here. And sometimes, Coming forward during an invitation and just kind of getting on your knees among God's people just helps to kind of seal certain decisions that might not be sealed other times. Churches don't do that much anymore. Seldom do you see people just come forward and just kind of get on their knees and weep before God as believers saying, God, I've not been exactly what you want me to be. I haven't lived up to what I know ought to be. There's way too much brass in my life. God, I just want to kind of do business with you here today. 
in the church. I realize we're the church. I get it. I understand it. But we just, we don't. You know, that wasn't true when I was younger. It certainly wasn't true in my grandparents' time. I mean, I've attended the old Brush Arbor revivals. You ever been to one of those? Anybody ever been to a Brush Arbor revival? Yeah, not too many. Well, let me tell you what. In those meetings, people would almost sometimes run to an altar just to kind of get on their faces before God and just say, God, I want to be what you want me to be. I'm, I'm really not, but I want to be. Weeping was common. People seeking God. We, just, we live in a different day, and I'm telling you, friends, I, I don't think it's healthy for us spiritually. Now, how does all of this apply? Well, let's go back to where we started now. Let's take the story of the golden shields with Solomon. Let's transfer it to us in the 21st century. What does this mean? Well, when Paul, and I would, I would argue, and I bet you would agree with me, that out of all the Christians who will ever live, Paul's probably in the top ten. Okay? I mean, would, would, would everybody kind of agree with that, that if we were listing Christians, you know, Paul would kind of be in the top ten. He, he writes over half the New Testament. He would tell you he's not a perfect guy, but he kind of rank way up there. But I want you to listen to what he said about himself. This is 1 Corinthians 9. So this is just a few chapters after that third chapter that we read a while ago. He said, I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. The old King James says, a castaway. Now, what is he saying? Is, is Paul saying that he's doubting his own salvation and he's afraid that maybe he could live his entire Christian life and end up unsaved and go to hell? That's not what he's saying. What Paul is talking about is the reward of faithfulness as a believer. And he's concerned that he may not live obediently enough to earn the reward. Now go back to the judgment seat. Gold, silver, jewels, wood, stay, uh, hay, straw. He's concerned about what he's building with. So very quickly, I want us to think about this judgment that every Christian is headed to. Me, you, Paul, all of us. Every Christian who knows Christ is headed to this judgment of believers. So first of all, notice the certainty of this judgment. Look at what Paul says about this same thing in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That in the Greek is the word bima. It, we don't see it in the English, so it's just judgment seat of Christ. That each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he's done, whether good or bad. Now, notice he says, we must all appear. We, Paul says we. Well, if he says we, what kind of people is he talking about? Christian people, saved people. We, we Christians are going to have to appear at the judgment seat of Christ. We must all, notice, must all. Doesn't let anybody out and it's going to happen. The certainty of it. In that passage we read a while ago, he said the day, capital D, will declare it. It's a day on your calendar. It's on my calendar. It's going to happen. I've had yesterday's events on my calendar for many weeks. Seems way off. It happened. I'm going to be in Indiana next weekend. It's been on my calendar for months. Way off. It'll happen. It's a day. It's, it's, it's certain. Second thing I want you to notice is the criteria of this judgment. Well, I thought Christians were saved. I thought we're under the blood of Christ. Oh, we are. We are. 
This judgment, according to verses 12 and 13 that we read a while ago, is all about not the foundation we have. That's right. We know Christ. If you're a Christian, now, there are some conditions here. You better know that you know that you know that you know Christ. You better make sure you're born again. Not a church person, not a a person with good intentions, born again. I'll touch that once more at the end of this message. But for those who do know the Lord, notice he said, Now, once you come to Christ, you start building a spiritual building. So now you're going to have to decide what building materials are you going to use. He says there's two kinds here. Gold, silver, precious stones. That's one category. Wood, hay, straw. That's another category. Now, notice he says, each one's work will become clear. The day will declare it because it will be be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. Fire. Now, what happens when you expose gold and silver and jewels to fire? Does it destroy them? No. Actually, it further purifies them. They get purer than what they were before they were exposed to the fire. Now, what happens to wood, hay, and straw when they're exposed to the fire? Poof! Smoke. Will you smell like smoke at this judgment? You say, well, Dan, I I need a little more definition here about gold, silver, jewels, as opposed to Wood, hay, straw. What is this? I mean, you're telling me these sins that I go out and commit? I mean, if I commit those to Christ, aren't those forgiven? Yes, they are. I think here it could be some of the wrong things that we do, what we call the sins of commission. I commit a sin. But I think more than not, this is talking about the sins of omission. The good things that we omit to do. You say, well, okay, define it. Well, I I don't know how to define it for you except to say every one of us has a particular calling on our lives as believers. We have a certain set of spiritual gifts and talents that God has given us. And God only expects us to do with those what we can do with those with his empowerment, right? So, for instance, Billy Graham used to speak to millions of people. Well, I don't have that platform. I don't have the platform of Billy Graham. So God is not, at this judgment, going to look at me and say, why didn't you preach to as many people as Billy Graham did? Why didn't I have the opportunity to preach to as many people as Billy Graham? So if I'm going to be judged based upon something I couldn't do, I'm going to score low. Well, that's not how this judgment works. Christ is going to look at you, and he's going to say, given your set of gifts, the calling I placed on your life, And the opportunity that came your way, what did you do with them? Now, this fire is kind of interesting because in the book of Revelation, there is a description of Jesus that that John gives us. And one of the things he says is he has eyes of fire. So how's this going to work? I think it's easy. You and I die or the Lord returns, whichever it is. If we're a Christian, we appear at this judgment. And the fiery eyes of Christ burn right through everything that has no eternal value, no eternal worth. So let me, let me kind of put, uh, a, not a guilt trip, but a load on you here. Paul just mentioned a while ago that our mayor here in Edmond, 
even though I, I'm not a citizen of Edmond, but our, our, our mayor in Edmond took it upon himself to declare this month is Gay Pride Month for Edmond. He bypassed the city council. He just unilaterally did it. Now, he's going to claim that he has that authority, and he probably certainly doesn't want to hear from us. But we have created a letter. We've drafted a letter. We have a number of pastors who've signed it. Sadly, not nearly as many as you would want, but we've had a number of pastors sign it. And Paul has shared with you that we need to show up at the city council meeting tomorrow, not with uh, uh, pitchforks and torches, not with ugly signs, not, you know, all homosexuals will burn in hell and stuff like that. We don't need any signs, none of that. But he's asked us to show up to be considerate, to be Christ-like in that sense, and to allow someone to kind of speak for us, but for us to show up. Now, some just cannot get there because of work or whatever, and I get that. But you know, you know that that ought to happen. Especially those of us in this church. We know that we ought to respond to this declaration by the mayor. Not in an ugly way, but in a biblical way. This is wrong. You don't speak for us. If you want to make a personal proclamation, that's fine. But you're not speaking for us, and we want you to know that. Now, all of us know that that ought to happen, and we all know that if we can, we ought to be there. If you do, I suggest that that would be one of those examples of gold, silver, jewels. If you have the opportunity to and you just decide, you know what, I'm uncomfortable in situations like that. I'm not confrontational. I don't like that. I'm uneasy. I'm embarrassed. I'm not going. I would suggest that that is wood, hay, and straw. I've known many Christians over the years, good people, not condemning them, who will come to me and say, Dan, I would really love to be more involved in in the work of the Lord. I'd really like to do more. And then they start giving me all these reasons. Sports, hobbies, their own career pursuits. I've known lots of believers who have actually scheduled the Lord and obedience out of their lives. Who put that gun to your head and told you you had to sign up for that traveling team? Who put that gun to your head and said that you have to be so head over heels into this hobby that you don't have any time left for any kind of faithfulness and service to God? Who said that you had to be at the top of your career so much so that you sacrifice your family and your marriage and your obligation to God through your church and service? Who said that that was the most important thing? You did. I would suggest to you that that is wood, hay, and straw. And the Bible does say, the book of James, that he that knows to do good and does not do it has sinned. So here's here's my thought here. And I believe it's biblical. These are the things that the Lord is going to be looking at at this judgment seat. And there are going to be lots of Christians. Notice, uh, he he told us that even if if a guy's life doesn't have anything to show for it, he's still saved. But he's going to smell like smoke. Because everything's going to go up in flames. So my question to you is, what would you have? Now, I want to reiterate here as we kind of begin to wind down. I cover the last point and we're done. The Bible makes it very, very clear, and I want to emphasize this, that you don't get to heaven based upon what you do. You can't do enough good. I can't preach enough sermons. 
I can't be baptized enough times. I can't read enough of the Bible. I can't do enough good deeds. I can't pray enough. In fact, the Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. We'll only be saved because of God's gift, right? But the Bible also says that you and I can earn rewards. I just want to give you two verses, then we'll go to point three and we're done. Second John Chapter 1, verse 8 says something that's very intriguing to me. He says, look to yourselves that we do not lose those things which we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. Have you ever read that passage of Scripture? John is warning you and me that we better guard our lives or we will not receive a full reward. He's not talking about salvation there. He's talking about believers, and my question to you is, will your reward be full, or will you stand there empty-handed? You may say, oh, well, it doesn't matter to me just as long as I get into heaven. I promise you, it will matter to you. Can you imagine how embarrassing, how humiliating it will be to have been saved by that grace that the choir just sang about, and then we basically stuck it in our hip pockets and then went about our own lives and our own plans and our own strategies. And no, I'm not going to that council meeting because I don't like feeling awkward and I don't like feeling uncomfortable. And by the way, Dan and Paul can handle it. They're big guys and they like this. No, we don't like this. To stand there before the Lord when you had opportunity, especially in a free country like this one. And you just didn't have time for it. Well, I'm going to play this, or I'm going to go do that, or well, we're going to go to this event. And we're going to... Okay, fine. All right. But we're going to give an account. And then there's another verse here in Revelation chapter 3. Jesus says, Behold, I'm coming quickly. He's talking to one of the churches filled with Christians. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. Now in the Bible, when the Bible talks about crowns, it's not referring to salvation. It's talking about rewards. I don't understand all there is to know about what the Bible says about crowns and rewards, except I can promise you this. I know what rewards are here. I know what it means to get a bonus for faithful service or to get a citation or some kind of award for faithfulness. I know what it's like if somebody is given authority or a crown or a special position because you've worked hard and you've earned it. And that feels great, doesn't it? Well, if we know what these are in this life, then translate that into what God will give you for faithfulness. Well, it so eclipses what your employer would give you for faithful service. Can you imagine what this means? But here Jesus is saying, be careful, don't let any man take your crown. Now, let's wrap it up with the last thing, and that is the consequences of this judgment. We've talked about the certainty. We've talked about the criteria. Let's talk about the consequences. Listen to what Paul says in verses 14 and 15. If anyone's anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. Now, I can't imagine the kind of reward that the Lord will be passing out. And the very fact that it's from Him even makes it more valuable. But if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved. Notice he says, he'll be saved, but as through fire. I say smelling like smoke. The Lord's righteousness will smoke those lives. Torch them. So my question is, at the judgment seat, will you be smelling like smoke? Because every one of us, 
is going to appear. Now here's what Paul says in warning as we close. But let each one take heed how he builds on it, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord we persuade men. Both of those verses are out of context talking about this judgment. Especially verse 11 of chapter 5. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord. And he's talking about the judgment of believers. And he associates the word terror with this judgment. When I say that I am terrified to face this judgment, I'm not exaggerating. So let me close with a couple of examples. F.B. Meyer, a famous British Bible teacher, said this, More than one person in the Bible started gloriously but ended tragically. The Bible is filled with people who began the race with great success but failed at the end because they disregarded God's rules. They did not lose their salvation, but they did lose their rewards. When Christ returns, we will stand before the Bema to receive our rewards. Of course, we will want to end well and receive the reward. Not to boast, but to bring honor and glory to our Savior. No matter how glorious may be the beginning of the race, the important thing is how it ends. This is why Paul at the end of his life said, I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. I have fought a good fight. Therefore, there is laid up for me a crown. So he's talking about rewards now of righteousness that the Lord is going to give me. But he said, not to me only. You can earn your crown. The question is, will you? Jim Thorpe, an Oklahoma boy, was a rage as an athlete. You probably know the story in the 1912 Olympics. He uh, won not only the decathlon, but also the pentathlon, which is a total of 15 grueling events. It was unbelievable. The following year, Thorpe was forced to return his gold medals, though, because it was discovered that he had played professional baseball in 1911. And at that time, Professional athletes were barred from Olympic competition. Now, you might say, well, that was a travesty. It may have been, but it was the rules at that time. He had won the events, but had broken the rules, and so he forfeited the prize. Friends, that is exactly what is going to happen to a lot of Christians. We're going to have run the race, and we're saved But because of our lack of obedience and our nonchalant Christian living, we're going to forfeit the prize. Now one last verse. I'm not going to read it all, but one last passage. Revelation chapter 20 verses 11 and 12 talk about that other judgment. This is not the judgment seat of Christ. No, this is the great white throne judgment. All the wicked that don't know Christ are going to be there. And the Bible says that every one of them are going to have their works thrown back at them. And they're going to find that they had no foundation. They're not on the foundation of Christ. And therefore, the Bible says, verse 15, anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. I I can't imagine anything more horrific, because there isn't anything more horrific than that. Eternity outside of the kingdom of God. So, that's the other judgment. Now, I don't know, I wouldn't assume anything, even in a crowd this size, that everybody here is a born-again Christian. So my question to you would be, which judgment will you be in attendance at? Because if you're not a believer, you won't be at the judgment seat of Christ. That's only for believers. 
And if you're a believer, you won't be at the great white throne judgment because that's a judgment for the wicked. Which one will you be at? If you died right now, what judgment are you attending? And it won't be your choice at that point. You have a choice now, you won't have a choice then. Make certain, first of all, that you're headed to the judgment seat of Christ, that you're a born-again Christian. Even if you see your life burn up, you smell like smoke, at least, as Paul said, you're still saved. But what about those who don't know Christ? Eternity lost. So, friend, it's really a question of smoke, isn't it? (laughs) Will you smell like smoke? Man, I hope not. And that's why I have given my life the best I know how. It's not been perfect. Because I don't want to smell like smoke. I don't want to hand to the Lord wood, hay, straw, or brass. I'd like for there to be some gold, some silver, some jewels. Are you really saved? I would never want to assume that everybody is.